I will be reading Matthew 18, 1 through 4, and 10 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then he called a little child over to sit among the disciples and said, I assure you that if you don't turn your lives around and become like this little child, you will definitely not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who humble themselves like this little child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Be careful that you don't look down on one of these little ones. I say to you that their angels in heaven are always looking into the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If someone had 100 sheep and one of them wandered off, wouldn't he leave the 99 on the hillsides and go and search for the one that wandered off? If he finds it, I assure you that he is happier about having that one sheep than about the 99 who didn't wander off. In the same way, my Father who is in heaven doesn't want to lose one of these little ones. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for making it out to church on this rainy, somewhat cool, but also very, I'm like sweat, like hot, muggy, almost spring day. We are so grateful that you are here. I tell you what, it has been, the weekend that I have had already has been full of surprises and blessings. Like, I can't even explain it to you. One of the, two of those things is seeing Miss Ashley Barreto here this morning. There she is. I have not seen her in like two years. And then, of course, Malik. I mean, what? Malik, smile. I know it is so good to see you, and Sandra, of course. I'm so glad you brought Malik. It is so great to see you. I tell you, um, but the the real surprise and joy of the weekend has to do with this picture that I'm going to show you up here. This is Joshua Garrison, who has the lead in the musical, in the musical, Pippin. And I have witnesses to back this up, not just his parents, but I was, we were sitting in front of Marie and uh, Charles last night at the show, and when he belted out his first note, we turned around and looked at each other, eyes wide, <laughs> could not believe it. He was fantastic. So he did such... I don't, I don't really know how to contextualize it, so... Because when you know of someone since they were a baby and you've held them and they stand up and go, one day more. I mean, that wasn't the song, but that I don't know. You know, it was absolutely incredible. That was not from Pippin. That's the only musical I know from Les Mis. So that's, that's what I had to do. So anyway, it was, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. It was, it was really great. Um, boy, this is really a downshift here because... Um, I have been getting news from various people, and I don't know if this is your experience in life, of what a hard season this last year has been. Incredibly hard. I mean, uh, it's uh, even at Allison's school, where she's the principal, she would talk about the teachers and students who've lost family members, people who are dealing with cancer, people who are sick. In our own community, we have that as well. And even just this morning, I got a text from Erin Holland, those of you who know Erin Holland. Uh, her mother passed away last night unexpectedly in Abilene. She has been suffering for a long time with Alzheimer's. 
And some of the most beautiful Instagram posts I've ever seen in my entire life are Erin dancing with her mother and singing with her. So anyway, I, I received this text this morning and she wanted to uh, let her church family know that her mom passed away and that her and her dad, Gary, her mom was, was Laura Holland, that there is going to be a service at um, the Highland Hill, uh, Highland. Uh, Church of Christ in Abilene, March 12th. I assume that they'll have ability to stream it, but she wanted to. Te she texted me this morning to make sure that you all knew about that. So let's pray for her real quick, okay? Dear God, we lift up the Holland family and the loss of Laura. Father, as Laura has struggled so much with um, Alzheimer's over the years, we know that though she may be lost to those who know her, in a way that part of her hasn't been the same for so long that you have always seen Laura and know Laura. That she has not been lost to you and she has not lost to you now. We pray for Gary and for Aaron and for um, uh, Aaron's aunts as they mourn the loss of Laura and we just pray for comfort in that family. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so who is worthy. Who is worthy? And considering all that we share in common with other human beings, it's an odd question if you really think about it. Of course, we all want to be safe and loved and cared for and have the opportunities to thrive. In fact, the Constitution, or maybe it's the Bill of Rights, in, in our founding documents, we have the idea that to thrive and to have the opportunity for freedom is something that's fundamental to who we are as people. But of course, all of these things can look different to different people. So sharing in something in common with someone doesn't mean that it looks exactly the same. Thriving for me isn't the same as thriving for you. It's an individual story. But if we take a moment to ponder the notion of how quickly we tend to throw people away and their stories and circumstances, and how we are both perpetrators and victims of a society built on meritocracy, we see that the troubled waters that we just talked about a second ago, the difficult times that we've all been dealing with to various degrees or another, cause to swamp us in our own feeling of well-being in the world. For some, the rolling waves of high expectations can be navigated what seems like effortlessly and in impressive ways. However, especially here in New York, you know how busy and how hard it is to eke out a living to pay for your $3,200 a month one-bedroom apartment with three roommates. I see some people smiling. <laughs> yes, you know how difficult and stressful that can be. Or for those of you getting one kid to school in the morning and then going to work and getting the call back that the kid's tummy is upset and you have that idea in your mind like, is it really, is it really upset or is it do manageable, right? Or you're at a time at which you are working at a company and things are starting to change and they're like, huh, we don't need to pay for this expensive Manhattan real estate. Why don't we move to Arizona? And the thought of moving down to Arizona is just incomprehensible. And the wave, and we crest over this wave up and down. And it looks easy from the outside, but I know on the inside, 
you feel like if I fall off this surfboard, it's over. It's a struggle. For others, the rolling waves of high expectations continually crash down onto people, pushing them further and further under the water to where sometimes they get pushed so far deep down that the light of the surface becomes fainter and fainter, and around them it just feels like darkness. So who is worthy? The central idea I want to communicate this morning is that Jesus has the most complete and yet challenging answer to this question. Let's look at Jesus' incarnation, Jesus' actions, teachings, death and resurrection. We can only conclude that Jesus has the authority from God to deem us all worthy. Not because of our works, but because of our faith because of the faith in Jesus. See, I almost slipped into it. Because of the faith in the work of Jesus. Page two is... There is a gremlin that got into my... Okay. Page two. That side. Here we go. Sorry. Taken from Romans chapter three, verse 20. Because from works of law, no flesh will be declared right before him... For through law comes knowledge of sin, but now, apart from the law, God's faithful righteousness has been manifested. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, God's righteousness seen through Jesus Messiah's faithfulness for all who have faith. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and have lost the glory of God. As one biblical scholar puts it this way, Paul is certainly teaching that faith is the core of our response to the gospel. But he emphasized that our faith is focused on and grows out of Jesus' faithfulness, which embodies God's faithfulness to his promises and his way of mercy as a just judge. Now, I'm not quoting Tom just so that he'll be like, yes, my favorite, blessed son. I'm quoting Tom because this, can you put that slide back up there real quick? I'm quoting Tom because this is in February 22nd, 2015. So I want you to know that anything I share with you this morning has been sitting, we've been swimming in these waters of ideas of welcome and belonging for a long time, for a long time. So it's the faithfulness of Jesus that deems us worthy. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus, we see God, and in Jesus, we know who God loves. Yet the church, globally, has always struggled with being known for its practices of exclusion rather than its practices of inclusion. So why is it that when people interact with Christians or the church, the initial reaction many have is one of judgment and evaluation on a level that in some ways is even more intense than the, than the evaluative tendencies of our society. We know how judgmental our society is. All you have to do is, I mean, try to watch a teenager get pick out an outfit in the, in the morning, and you're like, it's not a big deal, and you don't understand how big a deal it is because everybody is looking at every single thing you do in their world. We carry that in our adult world. But sometimes the culture at large, the world at large, feels much more inclusive and accepting than the church. That's upside down. 
The answer, to be sure, as to the reason why this is, has multiple strands of truth to it. The melding of religion and politics is a significant factor, and the church's own fear of change and reluctance to open new avenues of belonging are its biggest hindrances. In addition, there are our own individual, cultural, and societal baggage that we bring with us into church. For example, private lives segmented by class or race become public lives segmented by class and by race. Lives governed by consumption can create a consumer and product relationship with the church. A, what am I getting out of this, rather than a, what am I giving to this? This morning, when we look at the passage in Matthew 18, 1 through 4, 10 through 14, I want us to think about it in a slightly different light. I think we as a church here at 4080 80th may be able to take another and a long line of steps towards becoming a community of greater belonging and embrace. I love the scripture's opening because it shows just how little people have changed in the last 2,000 years. Verse 1 of chapter 18 says that the disciples came to Jesus and said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? (laughs) Isn't this the disciples' most relatable question in the entire Bible? You know, other times the disciples ask questions that just seem so dumb, like, asking Jesus if they should build three shelters for, like, Moses and Elijah and Jesus at the Transfiguration. Like, Jesus and, and Elijah and Moses have been in the presence of God. They don't want to live on a tiny house on some hill in the middle of the desert. That's not going to be great. But the disciples are like, should we build you a place to live here? That seems like such a crazy question. But this one seems spot on. Who is the best in your kingdom? The question about who is the greatest or who is the most worthy in the eyes of God is painfully relatable. I mean, ESPN fills hours and hours of programming discussion, discussing LeBron or Jordan as to which one is better. Obviously, it's Michael Jordan. So we don't even need to deal with that. <laughs> or political commentators talk about where does this state of the union rank and other state of the union that's all about ranking what is the best. And where does it fall in our evaluative culture? But I believe in this passage, we have the foundational understandings of how a group of assembled Christ followers can adopt an ethos of belonging and embrace that is patterned by Jesus. First, Jesus says, see that child? They belong. In fact, not only do they belong, but they are the model by which you are to pattern your life. Now, it's hard for us to navigate how radical of an idea this is. In our day, we almost elevate childhood to be this, like, to care and to nurture for children as the number one most important thing you can do from when you have your child until they're 18 and then live with you until they're 32 or 35 or 36, right? That, that we, we elevate, Levi, you can't. Okay, I just saw Allison put his arm around, and she's like, it'd be great if he lived here until we were... No. Five more months, bro, and that's it. No, no, I'm just... I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It's hard for us to navigate how radical an idea of this. For sure, back in the day, there are some children who had, ex- who had wealthy parents that sent them to be really educated and things like that, but for the most part, the vast majority of children in the first century the world certainly didn't revolve around them. 
And they would have never been thought of as some sort of way in which a religious leader or religious uh, following adherence to, to God were supposed to behave and act. Remember, I mean, these are children who are under 13. They, they, they have no standing within the temple or within any sort of religious expression at all. But Jesus centers the belonging in a child's identity and all and in a child's vulnerabilities, powerlessness, fragility. Jesus says that the disciples need to be like these children because in essence, that's what they actually are. Vulnerable, powerless, and fragile, just like children. So how many adults in here feel vulnerable, powerless, and fragile? I mean, I certainly at times do. Thank you, Lord. I certainly at times do. And if it wasn't for me to being surrounded by people who daily express how they love me and 10 milligrams of Lexapro, I would really, really, really struggle undoubtedly with this overburdened sense of anxiety and worry and fear. Now, I know that in many ways I'm lucky. Because there are others who, despite having people that love them or have any sort of therapeutics, the will to stay present or even alive in this world is a constant daily struggle. So if that's you, we acknowledge you this morning. We recognize the profound struggle to just wake up and face another day. And I say thank you for waking up this morning the world would be irreparably altered if you weren't here. And let me just say, if you are in crisis in this area where you feel like you would be better and the world would certainly be better if you were not here, I'm really begging you to come and... You don't even have to say anything. Just come and stand by me or Kyle or Carl or Mary Joseph, or Paul, or Tom, or Steve, or anybody that you can reach out to and say, that feels like me. Because you do not have to suffer alone. Being vulnerable and powerless centers you in the kingdom of God, but that's not the end of the story. Remember earlier when I referenced Romans 3, and I touched on the faith of Jesus it's the faith of Jesus that does the saving. Well, look at Matthew 18, 12 through 14 and see how Jesus talks about his work in the world. This is Jesus' work in the world. What do you think? If someone had 100 sheep and one of them wandered off, wouldn't he leave the 99 on the hillsides and go and search for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I assure you that he is happier about having that one sheep than about the 99 who didn't wander off. In the same way, my Father who is in heaven doesn't want to lose one of these little ones. These little ones, remember he had just told them, you are to be like this. He's referring to them. This little parable appears in Luke as well, Luke 15, 3 through 7. And I chose to use the Matthew version because Tom is preaching his way through Luke. In the spring of 2024, when he gets to this passage, I don't want to have already said everything that needs to be there. But, 
This is one of the most powerful parables in the Bible. The Luke version, Luke 15, 3 through 7, is even, is, sits in the middle of all of these other sayings about how much God pursues that which is outside of the group. The idea of Jesus' concern for the one as opposed to the many is an upside-down display of power. In a world where mass appeal garners a level of power, Jesus illuminates a world where power is depicted and came for the one who stands alone and forgotten by the masses. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I've always internalized this parable, partly due to the version in Luke. I've always conceptualized the actions of Jesus here as a redeemer going out to reclaim a sinner who has wandered off. Upon Jesus finding this sinner, Jesus fixes said sinner and brings them back to the flock. And for sure, that's probably the proper and most doctrinally sound way to interpret the story. But I want to take you on a little bit of an inter- I'm going to use a little bit of an interpretive liberty, and I would like for you to come along with me concerning this parable. And I want you to open up your minds to a parallel reading, not a counter reading, but a parallel reading to the story. So a way that I've been thinking about this parable is that the flock has this lack of interest and the one who has left. Viewing the parable through this slightly different angle places less focus on the actions of the one who has wandered away, the sinner who has taken themselves out of the picture, and puts it more focus on the indifference of those who remain behind. You see, there is nothing that a group forgets quicker than that of the isolation felt by one who is alone. And the scary thing is, from a Christian perspective, is that a person can feel and be alone even in the midst of a community. You know, young people feel this acutely because they are connected in ways that, I mean, you can't even, we can't even really begin to fully fathom from Snapchat to Instagram to, I mean, Discord to Twitch, to those, to on down the line, and yet I hear from just personally from Allison. I hear from others of you and educators that kids feel more alone and isolated than almost ever before, because it's not that they don't see what's going on; they see everything they're not included in. They see the absence of participation. The absence of being invited. The absence of community. So it's all about what they don't have. This connectedness has fueled isolation and loneliness in in teens and young people and adults too. We all probably have stories of family members who the world seems to pass them by because what's coming out of the laptop or the iPad or the iPhone is more important than everything else that's going on around them, and they lose perspective. This is where we come to the embrace portion of this message. When Jesus goes looking in the hillside for one and finds that which is alone and brings it back to the group, we cannot assume that Jesus did all the fixing, healing, and restoring on the journey back. I'm going to say that one more time. 
We cannot assume that as Jesus comes back that all the fixing and healing and restoring has taken place. What if Jesus brings the one who was alone back into the herd, not as an entirely changed and group-conforming person, but rather as someone who simply belongs because it's Jesus' flock, not ours? Said another way, perhaps the flock isn't all the same type of sheep, but rather all sorts of sheep, like these. <laughs> these could be cows for this crowd, and most of you know. <laughs> Look at all these different kinds of sheep. If you Google different kinds of sheep, it's incredible, the numbers of sheep. But when I've read this parable, I've thought of little white sheep that all look the same. This looks more like our church, actually. This is the flock of Jesus. This, to be a member of Jesus' herd, Jesus' flock, whatever the shepherd brings to us, they must have a place of belonging. And we must embrace them because the shepherd thought it was worth his time to go and be with the one who was formerly alone. The good shepherd then works to nurture all of us together as a group where we depend on each other under the direction of the shepherd. It's like this banner here. In case you didn't know, this banner was made at a church retreat nine years ago in 2013. I know, sorry for those of you who were there. <laughs> and I'll go ahead and call the worship team up because we'll go into their song. I'm almost finished here. And it perfectly illustrates what I'm talking about here. The yellow is Jesus, woven in each of our individual lives, represent, lives represented by the ribbons. And as we are incorporated into Jesus, we are woven by Jesus into each other. Never losing who we are and how we came to be as individuals first. Remember, never losing who we are and who we came to be as individuals first. Then, through the work of Jesus, we are joined by the whole. To the, we are joined to the whole. Our unique colors and textures make up the larger mosaic of a community brought together in Jesus. All are welcome. All are to be woven into the story of God through Jesus. All of us come with our burdens, joys, worries, and fears, and we are welcomed in to his.